Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Insights by Bergman, a podcast that provides timely commentary from subject matter experts on topics and trends related to our built environment. I'm Stacy Lake, and today we are kicking off an exciting series of episodes dedicated to a topic that is discussed by many in the architecture, engineering, and planning world, but still needs further definition and conversation to really understand its importance. And that topic is resilience, specifically the practice of resilience planning. We've got probably the best person joining us for this discussion, my colleague here at Bergman, Jamie Burchard Thoman. Jamie, welcome. Hey, Stacy. Nice to be here. Great. So, Jamie, you um, are your official role is a senior project manager. You are with our government practice, and you've got just a crazy background when it comes to resilience, resilience planning. Um, you are a certified floodplain manager. You're a member of the American Institute of Certified Planners, which, when you combine those two things, that alone is just so interesting. And you've got around 17 years of experience in this type of work. So tell us more about how how the heck did you get into this line of work and um, you know what drives your passion? Absolutely. It is something that has evolved very organically over the years. As a matter of fact, I went to undergrad and studied historic preservation. And then my master's degree is in historic preservation planning. So this is certainly not the area that I anticipated landing, but that's what's uh, interesting about life because you never know exactly where the road is going to lead you. So I think talking about resilience, uh, you know, I think this is a perfect way to kind of encapsulate that conversation. When I graduated from undergrad, my first job out of college was, I was a double major, historic preservation and geography. So I really enjoyed the built environment and the preservation of communities within the realm of geography. So the natural and the built environment together. And so I kind of cobbled uh, a degree program together with that dual background. I think what really kicked it off for me was becoming a contractor uh, in working the 9-11 the disaster uh, in New York City. And I worked on the ground filling out basically as a public assistance contractor and working with different types of people in that right after a very major uh, disaster event and really seeing how it impacts people and how people recover. It really it really hit me and I wanted to go back to school and learn more about planning. And so that's exactly what I did. And uh, I landed um, for the past uh, over 10 years working for uh, a regional planning agency in Rochester and doing a, a lot of different type of intermunicipal work at the regional level. And again, water is certainly a resource that doesn't respect municipal boundaries. And you find yourself working in all sorts of different parameters with assisting communities on uh, water quality and water quantity, uh, whether it be stormwater, floodplain management. And so again, as you can see, starting from when I first graduated from college all the way till now, it's almost, I feel like I've been, I should have a PhD in whatever this subject is, I guess, <laughs> flood resilience, because I, I feel like it's organically evolved over the years in terms of interest, but then kind of what is uh, recent trends and then just kind of observing and being involved. And I think working at the Regional Planning Council and working with so many different types of uh, organizations, whether it be local municipalities, state, uh, academic, uh, non-governmental organizations, not-for-profit, uh, other institutions, you really start to talk and learn from different perspectives. 
And I think as planners, we just, we take a little bit of information from a lot of different people. We kind of pull them all together and come up with a solution, taking all the diversity of backgrounds and interests and per perspectives. And I think that's really how flood resilience for me personally developed organically through the years because now I'm at a, a wonderful company with so many smart people with a diversity of backgrounds and interests. I think that ability to uh, cobble together resilience is further escalated on a whole new level. Yeah, and you know, to that point, this topic of resilience is a big one, yes. right? It's not an easy um, nut to crack. There's a lot of layers to it. And I think that's what's so intriguing to me personally is you, you, you're a self-described uh, flood super nerd. You know, you've got this background exactly. in, in the water side of things, looking at floodplains um, and all of the impacts of water. And that's something that we hear a lot about, right? You hear about the impacts of the way we've built our society along water for very purposeful reasons. But now we're at risk with climate change and rising water levels and all of these different climate um, events happening, right, that, that are causing us to look at whether it's lack of water, like droughts, or the, the influx of water through different events. So, but then that's only one part of it. And you've talked with me about this before, about how there's so many other aspects of resilience. Um, so, you know, before we kind of get into like the different nuances and the, the examples of what we need to be prepared for as a society, let's talk a little bit about resilience. Like, how do you define this word in the work that you do? Because it is kind of like a buzzword, right? It is a buzzword. It's certainly, right now, it's very relevant. Uh, we see a lot of different programs uh, trickling down from the federal to state programs and incorporating uh, resilience, the term, because I think we've seen a lot of these extreme events in our climate. So whether it be a storm surge or intense, very heav heavy precipitation events, areas of, of high and low water, we're just seeing more and more of these types of events. And so unfortunately, we as a society have continued to put valuable assets into these areas that are very vulnerable. And so you're starting to see the impact of those collision of two perfect worlds in terms of just property and people at risk and the frequency intensity of these events occurring. And so I'm framing it within the dialogue of climate change, extreme events. You know, I, I think of Superstorm Sandy, right, or Hurricane mm -hmm. Katrina, those events. But we do see resilience in terms of other types of energy or carbon emissions, carbon reduction. But I think it's become a buzzword because of these other types of um, storm events is really where it's at. But it does relate to so many other components um, to the environment. But within this one lens, it it is re very relevant right now. And it's good to see that we are creating these plans and policies and systems to create solutions. I think what I think resilience is, it's having an event that is very traumatic, being able to weather that storm, okay? And the event could be man-made and it could be, it could be acts of terrorism. It could be what we just went through with the COVID-19 pandemic. That's, that's obviously an event, a traumatic event. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to be natural, uh, like a flood or a hurricane. 
but it's a system experiencing that event, being able to respond to that event. And when I say a system, it could be a single, it could be a person, it could be a site, all the way up to an entire cluster or community, a region, global, right? So there's different levels of that system to how do we take the lessons learned from going through that event and how do we build back better? And it can be thought of in terms of a person. If you go through a traumatic event yourself, how do I build myself personally back to become a better person in the future to deal with this event to an entire community that may have experienced an event? And how do we take those observations and then build that risk reduction into our new way of thinking and building and developing. So that's my opinion of what resilience is. So to what extent is this sort of like a, you know, like a crystal ball? You know, you've talked about kind of learning from similar events, but is there an aspect of, you know, we can't tell the future. You don't know what's going to come down the path, but you know, in, in your expert opinion, like to what extent are you kind of trying to plan for the inevitable without knowing what that is? You're collecting data and you're always reviewing and just making the best decision that you can based on the information at hand. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a skill that is inherent to planners generally, because we have been doing this type of work, whether it be through comprehensive planning activities with communities where you're looking at 10, 20 years, what is what is the type of community you want to have in 10 to 20 years, or it's watershed management plans, or it's downtown revitalization plans, you're always thinking of what do we have now and how do we wanna get there? And so we're just seeing it resilience on our larger scale now because it's involving many more disciplines than I think we have seen in the past. Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the things that I've heard you talk about are the different aspects of this. You've talked about the soft and the hard, the non-structural and the structure, can, structural. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that's such a, a really helpful way for those of us who are a little bit further removed from the nuances of it to think about how you and other people in your field kind of frame this and, and what we need to be looking at as we're planning. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, I'm going to pull out a little bit of my flood nerd history right here. And then just nerd it out. We're example. good with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So a little bit of a history lesson here, and I'm going to use it within the lens of floodplain management because we talk about resilience and we talk about structural and non-structural. But again, this type of work has been going on for a number of years. And I think you have to start somewhere. And I really... Um, it's it's very easy to look back at policy development and be critical, but I think we need to start someplace and then you learn and you figure out what works and what doesn't work. So the National Flood Insurance Act was passed by Congress in 1968, and what it started was a conversation about non-structural measures for reducing risk and helping with floods. Before that, the country really looked at stopping floods by building dams and levees. It was a very structural approach. We're going to stop the water by containing it. 
And then the realization was, well, if we actually got into the work of floodplain management and looking at land use policies and code enforcement, some of the softer non-structural measures, looking at policy development and planning, providing flood insurance, looking at air, basically rating and looking at areas that are at higher risk so that people understand where structures are being built and how to reduce that risk of exposure. That started the conversation within the lens, again, of flooding of non-structural. And so it started in 1968, and before that it was all structural. So I like to use that to explain kind of where we are right now when we think about resilience and that a lot of times we want to build, right, there's the, that hard or that structural approach. So what are the projects? What can we do? What can we, uh, bridges and roads and other types of, um, you know, structures to, to hold back whatever we're trying to hold back to keep safe. But there's a whole other, yeah, right, exactly. There's a whole other component to it where it's, let's start at the base level. What is the foundation to the structures and the systems that we build? In a lot of cases, it's the policies, it's the codes, it's the local laws. That is what defines the kinds of structures, infrastructure, communities, places that we build. That is essentially the foundation. And when you're able to connect the policies and plans and even education and awareness programs at that base level, from there, you're setting the tone and addressing inconsistencies that can occur as you go up that pyramid for, okay, we've had the, 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 the non-structural soft approach. From there, you have the, the buildings, you have the infrastructure, and from there, you have the support system, the mechanicals, the structural. What are the types of services that those buildings and infrastructure need to operate efficiently? So as you can see, you kind of work from a foundation up to those uh, systems. Well, and this is this is so intriguing to me because, you know, I think about a couple of fairly recent um, disasters that happened in our country. We had the, the fires out in California a couple years back. They're continuing now. You know, we have them every year they happen. But a couple years back, I had friends who personally lost their home in one of the fires and they decided to go and build back in the exact same spot. And then you hear about this happening too, you know, down in Houston with all of the intense flooding that happened a few years back. I remember listening to another podcast about the flood insurance rates and what happened for those folks that then want to continue go back living in that same area. Um, so I feel like it, it's this really interesting overlap. You've got a society that already exists in some capacity, you've got a community, you've got people that have fallen in love with this area and businesses that that really need to be in that area for whatever reason. And then you're you're kind of having to undo and shape those policies and put new rules in place to prepare for the future. You know, how, how does a community really do that? I mean, that seems to be very societally kind of upsetting right. in some ways. It's an emotional process. And going through a traumatic event, again, whether it be man-made or natural, uh, there is an emotional recovery that goes through it as well. And the best time to make those decisions for rebuilding is right after, right, an event has subsided and that emergency response period has ended and you're rebuilding. That's the best time to strike to make those changes because if you wait too long, that emotional 
response to returning back to normal goes into effect and it's a behavior change. So a lot of advice that I give to um, communities, whether it be uh, again, communities, human communities or uh, local governments uh, or agencies is the recovery planning has to occur before the event even happens. Let's talk about it before the emotion is even there and let's have our recovery plans. Let's anticipate these events happening and let's think about, well, when we're back in that rebuilding, when we're in that rebuilding stage, let's have a plan that we can go to that takes the emotion out of it. And you can, we've already talked about it. We've, we've agreed on these solutions and these strategies and now let's just implement it and let's take that behavior, emotional reaction away because yeah. you're absolutely right. It is completely normal for human beings to go back to what feels normal to us. And that in order for change to occur and in, in order for resilience to happen efficiently and to learn from our mistakes, I think you have to be ready to be ready to be ready, yeah. to be ready, to be ready, to be ready. <laughs> and it takes a lot of back steps. <laughs> well, and it's, it's like going from this emergency response capacity, which I think is we see a lot of examples in. We have the the Ready program here, the, the Resilient Economic Development Initiative um, here along Lake Ontario when all the flooding happened uh, fairly recently within the last few years. That's more of an emergency response, right? And now nice. um, I know you and the team here at Bergman are involved in the, the CLEAR initiative, which is sort of like the forward thinking aspect of that. And I think it's so interesting because the two go hand in hand. We had the emergency response, but now we're like, okay, how do we how do we better prepare for this in the future? So can you tell us a little bit more about CLEAR and, and our involvement in that? Because I just think it's so fascinating and what's happening here in the upstate New York area. Absolutely. So CLEAR is the Coastal Lakeshore Economy and Resiliency Initiative. And it's a New York State Department of State program. And it occurs uh, along the Lake Ontario, St. Lawrence region. So there's eight counties broken down into five regions. And Bergman, we have been assigned the clear plan for Monroe County. And how it differs from the Ready program initiative is essentially what you just said. Ready was a very rapid, robust, quick engagement program looking at emergency response in context of that repetitive flooding along the lakeshore and finding out what are the at-risk infrastructure, so the bridges and the roads, what are those assets and those immediate economic development assets that we need to quickly get money to um, in order to recover and to rebuild efficiently. And so it was very focused on infrastructure and a very rapid response. CLEAR is looking more, I would say it's a grassroots initiative starting at the local community level and building up and the solutions that we propose will again ebb on the side of more of those softer solutions to resilience. So identifying again, not just the infrastructure assets, but the social, the environmental, the cultural assets, anything from uh, museums to parks to churches to daycare facilities you know what are those assets that are vulnerable and how do we better protect them and how do we as a society that lives in a dynamic place that is the lake shore of lake ontario and the saint lawrence seaway that does experience 
fluctuating water levels, high and low water levels, and anticipating, you know, the impacts of climate change that could occur in our region. And how do we think about what are the assets? What do we have to do to reduce risk? Um, and that could involve, again, taking a look at our codes and our ordinances and our local laws and our plans and thinking about, again, those different types of living in a dynamic ecosystem that is, again, uh, Lake Ontario and building in those solutions that look to reduce that risk. And again, it, it can be plans, um, education and outreach programs. It could be homeowner outreach. It could be looking to preserve, uh, do buyouts. Maybe it's looking at um, other areas for uh, attenuating floods, uh, green infrastructure inf initiatives, preservation of uh, natural areas, maybe it's green infrastructure. It's again, more of a softer approach and not necessarily looking at, well, we need to fortify this wall or build back better mm -hmm. with this bridge. And really working with the local community, uh, local municipalities, business owners, residents that were impacted by the, the high water levels of 2017 and 2019 and thinking more holistically, not just in Monroe County, there are other consulting teams in the other region that we can together have regional solutions as well. Well, and that's so important. You know, I've heard you mention on a previous uh, webinar that you did that importance of looking at it, you know, at the municipal level, but then also at the watershed level. And there's a clear difference in mindset, but they're all interconnected. They really are. I think there are some solutions. And again, let's think about let's break down resilience when we think about the site level all the way up to community to region, right? There are some solutions that are appropriate for more of a site approach. Then there are other solutions that are more beneficial and more efficient if you're able to achieve them on a, on a larger level and a regional level. So shoreline management is a, is a good example of that, um, especially when you're looking at artificial or hardened shorelines versus more of a soft or living shoreline. And when you think of uh, at, at these many scales, how what you do to protect or stabilize a shoreline could have impact somewhere else. So if you harden your shoreline in one area, the water is gonna go someplace else. So I think that is a really good example of a way to look at the different scales of resilience and think collectively. And that's what's so great about the CLEAR initiative is that there is a variety of solutions that can be proposed, but we need to work collectively to see um, where are we going to gain the best success for the most amount of people, society, communities throughout that comprehensive approach. Right. And I know that we're just getting started with this um, and we're recording this podcast right now at the very start of June and coming up soon, you guys have some of your first community outreach events. It'll be virtual um, with with community members, but that is such an important aspect of this. It's listening to the community, listening to what they need, what property owners need, residents and, and commercial. Um, so it's going to be really uh, intriguing. Hopefully you can come back, you know, and share with us more of what's learned from that as the plans being developed with the county. Absolutely. I look forward to hearing from the residents because it is a grassroots mm -hmm. initiative and we will be hearing from local people that have experienced these events. And where do you see your community in 10, 20, 30 years, knowing that we have such a dynamic, natural ecosystem here? 
what are we preserving and what are we developing, but maybe developing with a better eye to knowing what we experienced and how to reduce that risk and create more resilience. Yeah, and, and you and I were just talking about this before we started recording about just being where we are. We're both in Rochester, New York currently. We're right along Lake Ontario. We take for granted the fact that we have so many amazing water resources. We've got the Erie Canal, we've got the Genesee River, we've got Lake Ontario. The, the opportunities are endless in terms of what could become of, of how we as a community and a society really appreciate and enjoy these resources in a way that protects us in the future. That's right. Water is so important. It is a asset, whether it's used for recreation or tourism, commercial development, residential, people like to live along the shoreline, even though we know that there's inherent risk. You know, you talk about behavior change. People, we build back in those areas because it's beautiful. We love it. We love and water. Yeah, we, we love, love water. Love and we have to take care. Um, that comes with a responsibility in terms of whether it's a quantity issue. So when we talk about precipitation or flooding, we have to assume that there is some inherent risk. And how do we reduce that risk? So thinking about there's resilience, but then also the water quality aspect to it mm -hmm. and the quality of water, because we can't enjoy the water if the if the quality um, of it, whether it's a drinking water source or just being able to adequately use it for its fishing resources, you know, we have to make sure that we are good stewards of that water. And I think Rochester itself, having all of these water resources um, is really a, a wonderful place to kind of experiment and look about and think about these different types of water resources issues in, in the lens of resilience. Yeah, well, and, and you and I have chatted about this before, just looking at Bergman and how we're structured as a company. We have offices all over the Northeast, the Midwest. We've got an office in Jacksonville. When you look at the placement of our offices, we're along water. You know, we've got our Jacksonville office right near the, the Atlantic. You've got our Philadelphia offices right along the Delaware River and in the Chesapeake watershed area. You've got our New York State offices spread across the Great Lakes watershed and then out into Ohio and Michigan um, sharing that Great Lakes watershed. You know, I there's such passion from all of our people here on this topic, and we're we're very lucky to have you kind of waving your nerd flag in terms of being this this flood super nerd um and and really kind of just rallying everyone to pay close attention to this and and to me that's what's so exciting about this topic of resilience and resilience planning um it doesn't just stop at the floodplain and at the planning level you then move into energy sources with our energy conservation team our solar teams our you know all of those natural resources that we can use you've got our buildings group our architects and interior designers talking about how to build buildings in floodplains and, and all the things that we need to look at for resilience. Um, again, we keep going back to water as the example here, but we're going to have you back to this podcast with a number of other friends and experts talking about all the different aspects of these disasters that we need to plan for and how we're doing it across the spectrum of the built environment. Um, you know, roadways, bridges, buildings, you name it. Um, there's just a whole ton of components. So this is a conversation that's not going to end anytime soon. And, and to me, that's really exciting to explore all of these different aspects. Absolutely. Water is just the beginning of it. And having such a diverse group of individuals with engineers and architects, I think what we can do is be able to leverage all of those resources in-house through our ability to vision 
and to gain efficiencies. And that's how, as a company, we are becoming more resilient, is better using our employees and utilizing all of our diverse ways and perspectives of thinking and designing and building um, and, and telling our story. And that's how Bergman is resilient. I love it. This has been great. Jamie, thank you so much for introducing us to this topic and sharing your background. Um, again, we're, we're so lucky to have you on the team and really driving us forward here. Um, to our listeners, thank you for joining us again for another episode of Insights by Bergman. Clearly, we've got a lot of exciting topics to come in the future. Um, as always, you can find this episode and others at bergmanpc.com slash podcast and um, all of your favorite streaming channels. So Jamie, thank you again for joining us. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having me. I have enjoyed it immensely.